0: Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com.
1: Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we are talking all things funds, ETFs and mutual funds. We're going to talk about uh, the main goal of why they exist, what they do for investors today, how they're similar, how they're different. And there's a couple of articles by Jason Zweig that we're going to talk more about that that led us to think that this was a good time to have this conversation. So I'm really excited to dive in. Justin, where do you want to start?
0: There's a lot to cover with
1: this topic. And I think we do want to
0: hit on where do you want to own these? What are the downsides of both? When you hear me say that, you might be thinking, well, ETFs don't have downsides. That's why everyone is is going in the ETF direction. Uh, But there can be some. And some of these uh, Jason Zweig articles brought up some really good points. Where to start though, how about we just define them? I'll try to give a super simple definition and then I'll throw it back to you. If we're defining what is an ETF, what is a mutual fund, before even getting into any of the technical traits that they may offer and that they may have, let's just say that both are a security that you can purchase that allows you to own hundreds or thousands of positions, stocks, bonds, instead of just one position. And so I think at its origin, at its core, that's, that's what we're, we're getting at here. Whether it's an ETF or fund, I mean, that's, that's why they have not just become popular. I mean, that's why they have dominated uh, personal investing for decades now, uh, because you're able to buy one fund and potentially have access to hundreds or thousands of different positions. Where should we go from there?
1: Yeah, the only thing I would add to that like just kind of a good definition is systematic investing for the retail investor. Right? Historically, you haven't been able to own like think about trying to buy the S&P 500, right? Up until pre the mutual fund, you would have to own all 500 positions, right? And the technology that needed to exist for you to do that pre mutual fund, you know, you had to be running a managing money professionally, right? Because the technology just wasn't where it needed to be, right? So really what the proliferation of both mutual funds and ETFs have done, have made systematic investing available to the retail investor, right? So you can invest across certain market types. You could say, hey, I, I, w- I just want to own value companies. I want to own large companies, emerging markets. You can categorically group these buckets of stocks or bonds uh or even some alternatives into various categories and have one vehicle to own all of those underlying assets. So all in all, they're, they've both done really important things in terms of making thoughtful diversification available in a time-effective way to retail investors. So that's, that's the only thing I'd add there.
0: I think that's important. I want to say maybe we've talked about this before on the podcast, but you always hear these hypothetical examples with investing uh, and it goes something like this. What if you had invested $10,000 back in 1957 or 1970, pick it whatever date you want, and how much would that be worth today? If you would put 10000 into the S&P 500 and you make a really good point, uh, that, that wasn't possible. There was not an option in 1957 to pull out your iPhone and go to Vanguard or Fidelity or, or whatever you want to use and purchase an S&P 500 index fund. That wasn't an option. The, the obstacles and the barriers to investing in a thoughtfully diversified way uh, without enormous costs eroding your return, those just weren't available um, for, for a long, long time. So I think I think both the mutual fund and the ETF uh, have just done incredible, incredible things for the everyday investor and professional investors, both.
1: Yeah, right. And it gets back to idea we've talked about in another podcast, but attribution. Why owning broad exposures matter is because so few returns, if you look at the data and research, drive a lot of the positive performance, right? So uh, owning all of it matters, right? Because if you can own the S&P or if you can't own the S&P and you're owning individual equities beginning of 2022's been a great example of this the the S&P's down in the single digits but there's several securities down 30 40 even 50% so if you select wrongly you could uh it could be detrimental so having a efficient way to get diversification cuz the average retail investor doesn't have the time to professionally select securities. And even if you know you did professionally select securities, it's, it's hard to stick with it and, and outperform the market because the market has, it's processing so much information and making it available. So really what this gets down to is just letting attribution work for you and trying to own the entire market and start, instead of picking the best assets in the market. So both of those have really accomplished that goal. But Justin, let's talk about the mutual fund first because it was the first one to come to market and become generally available. You have some interesting data on the mutual fund, right?
0: Yes. So the origin of the mutual fund goes back, I mean, decades and decades, almost 100 years And so it also includes the Investment Company Act of 1940. So a lot of different legislation has has determined what mutual funds look like. But if we just go back to the very first mutual fund, let's see. And we're going to link this in the show notes. There's some really cool stuff on this. And even the first known mutual fund, the Massachusetts Investors Trust, a fund that still exists today. So there were some really neat just history tidbits that we found as we were thinking through this episode. And a lot of them come from Jason Zweig is a, a lead reporter for the Wall Street Journal in their finance section. So we can link both the Wall Street Journal and his, his personal site. But I want to get you an exact date. So, the 1924, and it was a broker in Boston named Edward Leffler. He was a traveling salesman who had uh, peddled aluminum pots and pans door to door after World War I. And so essentially, as the story goes, he was fed up with the fact that investors who wanted to uh, diversify had to buy an investment trust. And so, investment trusts pooled lots of holdings into a single company that issued stock and sometimes debt, and it would trade on an exchange. So, it doesn't sound too dissimilar uh, from funds that we would work with today. But one of the big issues are the price of these vehicles deviated pretty significantly from the value of the underlying holdings. Uh, so it just wasn't a very efficient vehicle to own um, different investments and uh, actually reflect what that, what that pool um, owned, what the underlying businesses in that pool were. So mutual fund came about by, uh, by, by that. And I mean, we think about it today. The mutual fund industry is a 15 to $20 trillion industry, and it has absolutely revolutionized not just the way that people invest, but I, I think it's bigger than that. Um, I think mutual funds have basically left a stamp on everyone's net worth. So when you think about money, when you think about your family balance sheet, most of those assets are are a lot, a lot of our listeners at least are tied to your 401k, to your workplace retirement plans. Uh, And that is, that is precisely, we're talking about mutual funds there.
1: Yeah. And to get, you know, we'll, we'll try to keep it as high level as possible, but one of the interesting nuances of mutual funds is the way redemptions happen right so if you think about it there's really two parties that exist there's the fund company and uh the retail investor so when the retail investor wants to buy shares in the fund there's only one place to get them the fund company that sells that mutual fund so uh what Justin talked about things deviating from their existing price it's because there's you know there's no intraday liquidity so what the fund the mutual fund company does at the end of the day they look at all the underlying assets how they performed and they deter- and, and all the underlying assets that are owned, and they determine a net asset value. And then any money that comes into or out of the fund is redeemed based on the net asset value. So uh, there's no, so you, you won't see. Wild fluctuations during the day because it's not there's not intraday liquidity, and there's really only two parties that exist the retail investor and the mutual fund. So that's how transactions happen, and why uh, net asset value is something you'll see with mutual funds and why they don't have intraday trading.
0: Yep, I think that's a key difference. And let's see, anything else we want to cover with mutual funds before going a little bit more into ETFs?
1: Yeah, I, the only other thing that's interesting. Is that mutual funds can close to new investors, so there's a little more flexibility in when you can decide you don't want to take on any more assets. Um, we'll get into ETFs and their fund structure and why it's more difficult, nearly impossible to 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 do that in the ETF fund structure. But and whether or not that's a that's a feature or a flaw, we'll kind of dissect later in the podcast. But that's one thing to note about mutual funds is they can close to new investors, which it it is what it is, and we'll talk about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing later in the podcast.
0: Agree. Yeah, that's uh potentially the con with ETFs and maybe a pro with mutual funds. But uh that's such a it's such a convoluted situation there. Really tough to decide if you're managing a mutual fund, you close it. Well, how does a mutual fund make money? They have an expense ratio, so they charge every investor in that mutual fund a percentage of their assets. Uh, so there is this difficult you know, decision if you're managing a mutual fund. You don't necessarily want to close it to new investors, but closing it to new investors can ironically be a really valuable thing for a mutual fund manager. So there's some there's some tension there at play. Now, I agree. Let's talk about that with ETFs. Uh, should we also talk about cap gains with ETFs?
1: Yeah, let's talk about let's. We'll talk about tax ramifications here in a second. But ETFs are exchange traded funds, which essentially means they're traded on a s- exchange. You don't go directly to the investment institution to re- purchase or sell shares. You could sell them on the open market, and so there's intraday liquidity. And if the market's down during the day, uh, there should. Your ETF share should move in lockstep with that. So, the other operational difference is there's an authorized purchaser that exists somewhere in between. So, the fund company will exchange shares with the authorized purchaser, and this authorized purchaser basically controls the daily liquidity and makes sure that the fund, the ETF trades at or near its underlying, the value of its underlying assets. So, there's a lot of nuance and intricacies, but in the mutual fund structure, there's really two parties that exist, the fund company and the individual investor. And then with ETF structure, there's three. There's the retail investor or the the end investor, uh, the authorized purchaser, which is usually an institutional investor that creates the intraday liquidity for this fund, and then the fund company that creates the the mandate.
0: Absolutely. And I feel like that is the key point that gets brought up with ETFs, the fact that you can trade them intraday. Um, and I don't think it's going to be a huge surprise to our listeners that, you know, I I, I think that's a really overrated feature. And it's it's not something that, that makes me run to ETFs um, as being the solution. Uh, why is it so important to trade in the middle of the day if you're dealing with wealth that has a 20 or 30 year time frame on it? And so I understand and I get that. You know, Certainly, there, there's people that trade for a living, uh, whether it's commodities or a different um, asset class. There can be a time and a place um, for trading. Uh, but most of the work we do is thinking through asset management with a 20, 30-year time horizon and using financial planning to fill in the gaps to provide cash flow in the near term. But as an investor, we always want to think in decades. And so the ability to trade intraday, uh, it might be nice. It's not necessarily a a deal breaker for mutual funds, in my opinion, at all.
1: Yeah, I would agree. But the the bigger thing that I think has led to a lot of the headlines and the ETF exodus is tax efficiency. And so let's talk a little bit about that. So in the mutual fund structure, when there's two parties, the fund company has to either buy more of the securities... As, as new money comes in, or sell the securities as money goes out, or they need to rebalance their portfolio. When that happens, that is passed along to the end investors who they're managing the money for. So, year to year, you you know, if you own a mutual fund, you will likely have uh, pretty substantial capital gains depending on how much transaction activity took place. And there's really two things that drive that transaction activity: outflow, so money money leaving the fund, or rebalancing of reconstituting. Right? If you're, let's say, you're the S and P 500, you're. Uh, that's the index you're tracking. And every year that the companies in the S&P change, so you will buy the ones that are now in it, sell the ones that are out of it, right? So this portfolio, like ongoing portfolio management activity creates this process, right? So that, So that's where capital gains come in for the mutual fund. Where they come in from ETFs, it's a little bit different, right? We talked about the authorized participant that sits in the middle and creates daily liquidity. So instead of the fund company buying and selling, there's this authorized participant that's doing that. And because it's the authorized participant doing that, and they're really just exchanging cash or ETF shares with the ETF issuer, that's what's called in the eyes of the government a like-kind exchange. It's like a like-kind exchange. So there's no capital gains lost that are accrued or realized. So it's all technical and really high level, but kind of some of the underlying components of why Uh, ETFs have less in capital gains because there's another participant that exists in between where they can exchange various shares that are like kind without realizing any capital gains. It just, this participant creates an opportunity for the ETF to be slightly more tax efficient and to realize less capital gains.
0: Yes. And I think if we just simplify that mutual funds, you have the uh, potential consequence of a real tax bill every single year. Typically in December, the mutual fund is going to issue a distribution of sorts that is going to uh, take care of any interest, dividends, capital gains that were incurred all throughout the year. Remember, what, what was our initial definition of a fund, whether it's an ETF or mutual fund, it's a vehicle that holds lots of investments. What do investments do sometimes? Pay dividends. And so even just receiving dividends, uh, remember that's you know, a taxable event. Uh, most investors don't think about this because, you know, a lot of times if if you have a Fidelity brokerage account, you might uh, receive dividends for stocks that you own and you might have it set to automatically reinvest, right? But the IRS does not care. That's still a taxable event when that comes in. And so when you think about all of that taking place, all of the activity uh, within a mutual fund taking place... Um, Trading dividends, all of those things, uh, those do have to get pushed out to the investor. Whereas an ETF, uh, it does not. And so, again, if we just simplify this, mutual funds, you could have a tax bill uh, year in, year out. ETFs, much more tax efficient on that front.
1: Yeah. So, in light of the point you just said, ETFs, you know, tend to be more tax efficient because of this, you know, reduced capital gains distribution because of how uh ETFs are constructed. Are ETFs or is that what you're saying ETFs are better than mutual funds, Justin? What do you think?
0: You know, if you uh if you really make me give a blunt answer right now, maybe we do pick ETFs, right? Like if we had to pick one and get rid of the other one forever but, uh, there's so much pro ETF news out there. So let's make a case for a potential negative. Let's talk about the issue of closed ends and yeah, let's give a quick recap of what's happened with ARK and how many, how many new assets and why it's so difficult when new assets come into a fund to deploy, deploy those assets thoughtfully.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great point, right? So, uh, Mutual funds can close. ETFs kind of remain ongoing and have ongoing issuance. So the problem with that is, ARK is a great example. We'll link to this article in the uh, in the show notes, but Jason Zweig wrote a piece talking about ARK's performance and how there was just a flood of new money into the fund, which basically makes it harder for you to put it to work, right? And If you're managing billions and billions of dollars, and let's say you're trying to buy undervalued companies or even decently sized large companies, your positions become so large that rebalancing can move the price more than you want it to because of how much of shares of an underlying company you may own just by being a massive massive issuer. So just by this periodic rebalancing of just trimming the portfolio and maintaining the the proper exposure you want, you can create adverse impacts on the price, right? To fill a position if you're if you're allocating tens of billions of dollars to a single position, there's not the liquidity that exists intraday to do that. So you're likely if you're buying it over time to get into that position, you can move the price up, which makes, you know, which makes it a less compelling investment, right? So this is one of the scenarios where Having a tons of money in your fund isn't necessarily a great thing and in an endless amount of money that can come into your fund because you have to put it to work. And if you have a ton of money that you're putting to work, you can move the price of the securities you're investing in. What would you add there?
0: Yes. So I want to hit on two things. You just hit on one of them. Great example, ARC, an innovation ETF that invests. It's an ETF that invests in a lot of tech companies. They, I wanna say their recent AUM, they manage over 50 billion. Uh, I think it's in that ballpark, right? But four years ago, they had, I mean, 10 million. I mean, they had a, a fraction of what they currently manage. So we think about what Jared just mentioned. That's one of the two critical issues. Uh, if ARC today wants to lower a position or rebalance their positions, they might be selling an enormous amount of one security. And so if they want to hold on to a portion of that security, but they need to trim it, they need to sell it, they might be selling so much of it that the portion they're holding on to is negatively impacted. But now the first reason, so that's that's kind of number two, the first reason I want to come back to Warren Buffett talked about this a lot. That in his early days, and I, I think Kathy Woods maybe said this exact same thing, or it's been it's been attached. But you know, the principle applies to any fund manager. When you're small, you're looking for good ideas, right? You're looking for good value that you can invest in that's going to provide an incredible return. The problem is Warren Buffett doesn't have the freedom to look for good ideas anymore. His exact words, or it was him or Charlie Munger, they said, "Well." 50 years ago, we needed good ideas. Today, we need good, big ideas. What's the current cash holdings of of Berkshire Hathaway? I mean, it's truly astounding. They have so much cash. A good idea isn't helpful for them if it's a tiny investment. It will only move the needle uh, if they find a big, big idea. They need to deploy lots of capital. In other words, It's completely different to deploy 10 million dollars than 50 billion dollars and so we think about the the closed-in nature and that that being potentially a a feature of a mutual fund that they could close it Uh, why would a manager ever want to say no to new money new money is more revenue for them well at some point it can become really difficult to thoughtfully allocate capital and uh, ETFs, almost no ETFs, it, it just doesn't really work out with their structure to just close to new investors. And so it can be really difficult when they just explode in value. They have all of these assets, and then they're thinking, where do we deploy this? Where do we invest this?
1: Yeah, strategy dilution is a very real thing, right? So like if, if a manager wanted to start a fund that invested in micro cap stocks, which is the smallest of the small stocks, right? 50 million to a few hundred million is typically the size. So these are really small in terms of publicly traded companies. If, if a micro cap manager had $10 billion they had to deploy and they wanted to do you know 2% allocations across 50 companies, that essentially doubles the price of the stock overnight, right? Because there's, there's just not enough liquidity to get into these small micro cap companies, right? So really what it comes down to is strategy dilution. And the same thing with Buffett, you were talking about at Berkshire, is like they try to acquire value stocks, Right. But what company has intraday liquidity to get them a meaningful amount of money invested without turning the value stock into a growth stock because of how much you buying it would push the price up because there's just not enough intraday trading. I mean, you think about a micro
0: cap fund and micro caps are exciting, right? It's the thought of the thought of getting really uh, invested into tiny companies that are maybe worth 60 million dollars today. That's exciting because they have so much room to grow. But think about Berkshire Hathaway and how much cash they have just sitting on the sidelines. They don't have the ability to look at microcaps, regardless of how good of a deal it is. I mean, we're talking about them deploying a hundredth of a percent of their available cash. They they can't spend their time on that. That's that's not a big enough idea. So it really can be a feature for a mutual fund in order to stick to its mission and do exactly what it is there to do. It can be a feature to close off to new investors to make sure that they can only thoughtfully deploy capital instead of taking on capital and having to put it somewhere.
1: Yeah, that's right. So that that is kind of a point for mutual funds, right? If there's a niche strategy that could become a crowded trade or too much capital could Make it really difficult to size the portfolio and position it correctly. That could that could hurt it, right? And really erode any sustainable edge that it's seeking to capture through a targeted exposure.
0: That's right. And if we if we get applicable here, and we think about what is our audience typically investing in, and does it make sense to, you, to for you to have mutual fund or ETF exposure? I do think it's worth mentioning that that most of our audience, uh, their, their assets, their family balance sheet is located in tax-advantaged retirement accounts. So because there's a tax shelter, it doesn't matter. Uh, some of the articles we're going to link with uh, Jason Zweig talking through mutual fund taxable distributions. Vanguard had a target date fund that had a 15% capital gain distribution. So that is just... Really bad if we just got to the chase, uh, especially Vanguard is, is really thoughtful uh, with, their, with their tax strategies and stuff and just the nature of not being uh, a high turnover, being more index oriented. Vanguard typically does a great job there. This fund happened to have a huge capital gain. Now, I do think it's worth mentioning, though, that if you hold this fund in a 401k, an IRA, any tax sheltered retirement account, you don't have to worry about that. If you own that target date retirement fund from Vanguard, that capital gain distribution just didn't matter to you at all uh, because it's in a retirement account. If you hold it in a brokerage account, though, that's a big deal.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important to call out like there's there's pros and cons to both. But I think for our investors, this is where one of the things we've talked about asset location comes into play. Right. Because to put dollar values to what Justin was talking about, if you have a mil- if you had a million dollars in this target date fund, that's a hundred and fifty thousand dollars in capital gains that you had zero control over. And you had zero say in the matter. You didn't get to meet with Vanguard's team to say, Hey, let's defer these capital gains till I'm in a lower income tax year, or hey, these people are redeeming, but I'm not redeeming. Why should I like I don't want to realize the capital gains? You had no choice. I want to
0: emphasize what you just said. In this example, you probably didn't take the money out at all. You probably kept it invested. You weren't spending it. You weren't taking the distribution. You kept it in the
1: fund, continuing to invest,
0: but you still had to pay the tax bill.
1: Because of how it's structured, right? And then $150,000 in capital gains. If if you were in the 20% marginal tax bracket, $30,000 in a tax bill, and you had nothing to do or say about it. So Tax efficiency really matters. So, as a rule of thumb, it oftentimes make, makes more sense to put mutual funds in tax deferred wrappers because that you just have you have less control in, in terms of capital gains and and we th- we think they're a little less tax efficient. The jury's still out, but having the flexibility, right? Because even with a an ETF, there's capital gains that accrue, but they're deferred, and you have autonomy to when you realize this big gain. So your capital gains don't evaporate if, if you're an ETF investor, you just have more control over when you realize them. So that's just kind of a nuance there and something that's important to consider. I uh, feel like there is a can of worms here that
0: we could get into that we're not going to, but we could get into the can of worms of dividends. Are they good or not? Um, and I just want to emphasize what you just said. It is really special that with ETFs, you essentially get to decide when you realize them. Dividends are awesome if you get control over when you receive them, uh, because dividends are taxable. Back to back to Warren Buffett, Berkshire, Hathaway. Uh, they do not pay a dividend and will instead do stock buybacks, other things like that because essentially their, their mindset is we're worried about long-term compounding and appreciation. Total return is, is what we should be concerned about. Total return is appreciation plus dividends. Uh, So I don't necessarily care if we're getting the total return we need. I don't care what path we took to get there, whether it was appreciation or stock buybacks or dividends. So that's a can of worms. We won't go into that now, but it is really, uh, it's something to note that in ETFs, you get the ability to decide when you want to realize those taxable events.
1: Yeah. So those are kind of two of the differences, but I think it's important to take a step back and remember Like in the case of Brownlee Wealth Management, client model portfolios have exposure to both. So we think there is a time and a place to both. And we gave great examples, right? If there's a targeted exposure may make more sense in a mutual fund wrapper, or it's deviating or owning less liquid investments may make sense to own it in a mutual fund. ETFs, if if they're available and they get a comparable exposure to what we want from an investment perspective, we usually prefer an ETF to a mutual fund. But sometimes, you know, we can't get a good targeted investment exposure to a specific asset class in the ETF wrapper. And we'd, so we'd rather have that in a mutual fund versus a, a watered down investment exposure in the ETF wrapper. So it's really important to kind of thoughtfully construct uh, and have a philosophical orientation as to, okay, where would I prefer to locate and what asset classes do I want? Another interesting thing about the Vanguard thing, that Vanguard target date fund was that the underlying fixed income exposure was likely not municipal. So it was creating a lot of taxes above and beyond the capital gains, right? Because target date funds are primarily owned in qualified accounts. So it's most important Make sure what you know what the underlying investments are. Have conviction, okay, what exposure to what asset classes do I want to get? And then you look at the available investable universe and say, okay, which gets me the best exposure to the asset classes that I want to be exposed to? And then you, you kind of make a consideration for, okay, which type of wrapper, assuming the exposures are equivalent, should I pick? So in terms of hierarchy of portfolio construction, this gets a lot of attention and it makes for Eye-grabbing headlines, but really, in terms of the order of operations, it's kind of lower on the list. It does matter, and it can move the needle, and it's something we thoughtfully do. But before you decide, okay, should I own this? Should this be on an ETF or mutual fund? Make sure it's the proper exposure in the proper portfolio, and in the proper account.
0: That's well put. Yeah, I think there are big consequences to doing this wrong. Your example is a really good one. If you happen to have a million dollars in that Vanguard target date fund and you owned it in a non-retirement brokerage account, well, that's a big deal. And so thoughtfully uh, deploying both mutual funds or ETFs at the right time, at the right place, that's that's where you want to be.
1: Yeah, and I think kind of to wrap up this episode. So the question is, do our ETFs or mutual funds? And the answer that any good financial planner should give you is, it depends, right? And I think like if you look at the historical context of where we're coming from. ETFs do have, we think, some significant tax advantages. So everybody's bashing the mutual fund. But some of these, you know, it's not that simple. It's not ETFs are always better than mutual funds. And in black and white thinking, especially in kind of some of these, these investment components can really get you into trouble. Or, you know, people creating an ETF fund structure when they really should be a mutual fund could create adverse consequences in terms of portfolio positioning. So, like, like most things, the answer is it depends. It's not a fun answer. And, you know, there's a big migration to ETF and we totally think that's warranted. But we also don't think there's a pending death of the mutual fund just because of this mass migration.
0: That's right. I mean, what did I say several minutes ago? If you made us pick, if you made us choose today and we could only pick one, maybe we do go with ETFs, um, but I'm really glad that we don't have to pick. And instead, we can just look at the universe of investment options and ask the question, well, what is in your best interest? What are we trying to accomplish? And let's use every tool available to get there.
1: Awesome. Well, that's all we got this week. Uh, Of course, if you have any questions, thoughts, feedback on what we're doing, we'd love to hear from you. Podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and
1: tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.